Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Georgie Bailey. And I'm the cosmic horror from the other side of the void, Duncan Nickel. Thank you, Duncan, and welcome back to our final episode of this year's spooky book club. Still so happy you chose that name. Yeah, I was um I was listening to the radio the other day in the car, and the radio hosted a whole bunch of like spooky Halloween puns, and I went, ugh, that's so cringe. And then I looked at myself in the rearview mirror and I said, Oh my god, what have I become? I'm this DJ. Anyway, it was a serious moment of reflection. It almost shattered my mind, almost like a cosmic horror. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful, seamless tie-in. Well, Jordy, firstly, you have 11 months to come up with something better. And secondly, cosmic horror. A great subject that really, I think, only seems to get nailed in the written form. That might be true. I do have a movie on my to-watch list called The Void. I intend to watch it this Halloween season, and apparently that's a very good spooky cosmic horror. So I guess I really should have watched that before the last episode of our Halloween selection, instead of like talking about it in November when it's all said and done, but hey-ho. I did watch it. It was quite good. Uh, Very good creature effects, extremely gory, good cosmic horror. Not as good as Fall of the House of Usher, but that's a different genre, really. I'll let you off. It's this weird thing, is it? Because, like, it is, like, the spooky month, but also, like, Halloween is the end of the month. And then it's just like this. Okay, guys, pack it all away. Yeah, pack it away. It's Christmas, Christmas time, guys. Come on. Happy cheer. Yeah, and especially in England. Like, we don't have to waste our time with Thanksgiving. No, so we go straight. What I don't get is the fact that because Christmas gets earlier and earlier, it's that like you get all the Christmas and Halloween stuff comes out at the same time. It's true. I've shops. already seen Christmas chocolates. What, like next to Halloween chocolates? It's like the same little bars, just with like a Santa Claus and a, no, I don't know, Frankenstein's There monster. was like these little like snowballs with like snowflakes on the outside of them. Like, uh, excuse me, that should be a spider. <laughs> Gosh, I do miss, like I do, I love Halloween. And I always thought Halloween would be one of those ones that like, as I got older, I'd be able to appreciate more because it's like, oh, it's the horror. And like when you're growing up, you get to like watch more horror content. But I do think it is just more fun as a kid, like when you're not really tapping into like horror and just the aesthetic and the the mood of what modern commercial Halloween mm. is. Duncan, do you have a costume plan for this year? Oh no, absolutely not. If I have to pull something out at the last minute, I have a little um, like werewolf's tail that you can pop <laughs> into the back of my jeans, and then I'll just do a face full of makeup. Why do you have that, Duncan? <laughs> um, I've had that since I think my first year at university. When I went into like a secondhand shop to find a costume last minute, and I was like, "Yeah, this Duncan, will do." You, what do you think that? What do you think it's for, though? Like, really? Uh, ha- Halloween costumes, Geordie. Okay. Nothing more sinister okay, than gotcha. that. So my plan is to go as Ken. <laughs> I I realize that I have the perfect ensemble for it. I have a red bandana already, so I feel like I can pull it off and. Me and I'll say hi, Barbie. It's all the Barbies I see. That sounds really. I mean, I was about to say really nice and just yes, Jordy, you channel that. I do feel it's a bit. I don't know. Was it cheating when people go for like a non-horror-based costume? But then I'm also like, yeah, but if everyone's just been like a zombie or a 
you know, vampire. It's so it's so easy. That was what everyone was doing when at at university was everyone just put a bit of blood on them and they wore regular clothes. And I was like, I'm a zombie. Maybe that was just the era we were in. Maybe it was just prime Walking Dead dead time. I think it was. It was definitely. I knew a lot of people because you just did the white face, and it works well. And exactly, you looked a bit pale. You could, if you went the extra mile, you could put a bit of dark about your eyes. I respect the people who go really all in on their costumes, but also there's always that point where I'm like, what are you planning to do other than stand about in said costume? So I shouldn't judge. It's a fun hobby. I like I like it when people really go to town. It must be get a lot of enjoyment and satisfaction out of it. So Duncan, I want you to tell me about what you think about my Halloween costume for this year. Um, I'm thinking that I'll pile on like a hoodie and a beanie and a whole bunch of scarves and I'll really just wrap myself up and I'll go and su- go in search of a worm. What do you think? I think if a single person gets the reference to the worm and his kings, then you should just give them mm-hmm. a high five. Because that's some obscure stuff. Oh, it's true. We have gone really niche this time. I, I literally just looked around and said, I want to find a current book, which doesn't sound like anything we've read before on the podcast, and no one has ever heard of. And I definitely found that in The Worm and His Kings. And it was a much more unexpected story than I even anticipated. Yes, I don't think, hope we're being too mean by saying no one's ever heard of. It was this written by Hayley Piper. She's put out quite a few other works. But nothing I would say that I hit mainstream. Till Geordie, you came to me with this book. Not heard of the book. Yeah, they don't have like a lot of reviews. That's what I'm making my assessment based on. Like, I believe Hayley Piper wrote like a really like a really well received book that won like award like the bram stoker awards and stuff for horror okay so the critics are there even if like the waves of people aren't and to be honest having read this book i'm like people get on this i enjoyed this read geordie like a lot oh yeah for sure particularly in drawing comparisons to what we read at our last book club hp loves the shadow over in's mouth this does Basically everything better. Mm-hmm. Like, everything. <laughs> You'll hear no argument from me there. It goes to show what I was saying at the end of the episode that, you know, H.P. Lovecraft invented a new type of fiction, a new type of horror, and then everyone else just took it and ran with it. And, you know, obviously he gave a great gift in producing this for other people to imitate and improve on, but improve upon it they have. So, Jordi, before we kind of dive in then into The Worm and His Kings, have you read anything else, like, in a busy two weeks? Yes, uh, I have. And um, one of them was actually surprisingly relevant to The Worm and His Kings, because it also involves complete global calamity, and that is Elric. I, I finished Elric. I finished Stormbringer. Congratulations. It's been a long road. It has been a long road. It, it has. It has been... I think I've spent several months reading this extremely short story. Is that a bad sign? Was you, were you losing interest? I, I was... No, I just... I really took my time with it. I, I've read a whole bunch of other books. Like, I was reading Inheritance at the same time, and The Stand, and The Shadow of Innsmouth, and The Worm and His Kings, and I just kept dipping back into Elric. So, what did you think? I mean, Stormbringer is the final in the original trilogy the last it's the last one chronologically isn't it this is the climax whichever way you kind of split it uh, i really enjoyed it you know um 
it obviously has like it's a fairly famous story but the actual beats and details of it were complete surprise to me like i was really astounded by how often i kept being completely blindsided by what came next uh i did i knew it was about this ultimate climactic battle but i didn't realize how horrible everything just sort of ends up it becomes truly and deeply hopeless and of course being more cocky and it goes these incredibly strange and weird directions but i can't believe i let myself be surprised when elric's sword started killing his friends like that is the quintessential thing that it does and i still went <gasps> no Okay, gonna skirt around the spoilers here, but yes, it is. I've 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 spoiled nothing. Um, I was also even surprised by the final line, which I quoted to you in our last episode on Elric, because it is not delivered by the character who I thought it was delivered by. Even that was a huge surprise. I'm so happy you had that moment, and I really loved this book. I really loved Stormbringer because to me, the ending of Stormbringer, like perfectly like summarizes the sense that it's not apocalyptic it's cataclysmic this is Mm. the world like imploding on itself at the end of this saga i love it it's true uh i think i'm gonna have to wait a little while before reading any more elric i i still want to finish the citadel of forgotten myths because it would amuse me to finish an elric story before duncan but um, And I have knowledge of this saga, which he lacks. But I think I do have to take a little bit of break from it because um, it is such a profound end to a character that um, I think, yeah, I need a little break. I'm not going to jump straight into fucking Hawkmoon. I think that's quite right. I also struggle to pick up another Michael Moorcock character after the end of Elric. And already, I don't want to dwell too much on Elric, but this is a topic that we have visited twice in prior episodes in Elric and Melibone. And we will again in the future. And with White Wolf. Uh, Geordie, did I give you the right order? Now that you've finished... Comment, brackets, whatever, air quotes. Now that you've finished, air quotes, the Elric saga, do you feel like I gave you a fair order? Did I line it out right? Or are you a bit like, Duncan, I don't know, mate? Yes, I, I definitely think you did, pal. Like, um, I think Elric of Manimine to begin with, and then jumping in... Uh, just, well, no, you, you gave it to me wrong, because you said... Uh, <laughs> wait, no, you didn't. Sorry, I'm being unfair to you, because you explicitly told me, don't read Fortress of the Pearl, and I didn't listen to you, and that was on me. Um, uh, So, yeah, the correct order is, in fact, Elric of Manimine, Weird of a White Wolf, The Sleeping Sorceress, Forward Slash Vanishing Tower... Uh, Bane of the Black Swords and Stormbringer. That is the correct order to do it in. Don't try and read Citadel of Forgotten Myths. Wait. Hold your horses. But Duncan, when should I read The Son of the White Wolf? Oh. Oh, I've not even gone that far. So the Elric... Really? Yeah. Also, how can it be a Son of a White Wolf? I don't know. There's also one called like Elric and like the Moonbeam Road and he goes time travelling. There's Elric at the end of time and I swear there's one where he goes and hunts the Holy Grail and, and kills ties Hitler. Into the dance t- well, he, he was pretty close to hunting... Wait, what am I killing Hitler? What? I mean, he... Uh, but, uh, hunting the Holy Grail is not that far off because he does meet Roland and Roland is pretty connected to like the stories of King Arthur. But 
uh, anyway, anyway. This is not an Elric episode. <laughs> well, well, he'll have his it's time. It's not an Elric episode. This is a Worm and His King episode. Duncan, did you? Did you? Did you? Yes, I did. It was a really brief one. I read a short story by Nancy Collins, who is an accomplished horror writer, probably most famous for her character Sonia Blue, who I want to say is completely unrelated and not inspired of Red Sonia, but Sonia Blue was written after Red Sonia became a thing, so I don't know. But yeah, it's a story by Sonia with a Y or with a J. With a J. Then it's a ripoff. Sonia Blue, Vampire Hunter. But I didn't actually read a Sonia Blue story, sorry. I read, because I'm me, a Robert E. Howard pastiche written by Nancy Collins called The Deadhead Tavern. And this is a Solomon Kane story. Solomon Kane's one of the uh, lesser yes. known Robert E. Howard characters, and by that I mean not Conan. It follows a Elizabethan-era Puritan who swaggers about Europe and Africa um, being all puritany and dealing with some even slightly more cosmic end of the spectrum of horrors, I will say. And this was a really interesting little short story. It was, in fact, the prelude to the story in the book, the foreword, that's what we call it in the industry. Now, the Connors kind of outlines that this was originally fan fiction she wrote when she was actually like a child, before she became uh. a full time author. And she actually fully forgot about it. She sent it off to her fan magazine, lost her original copy, went out of her head, and then years later, someone was like compiling all the issues of this fan magazine and found her old story and sent it back to her. And she went, oh, I might like republish this. Stick it on Kindle for £1.50 and uh, see how <laughs> it goes. And then she goes... But like updated. Oh, yeah. She then goes, and then I read it again. And I've now rewritten approximately 95% of it. (laughs) Still the same story. It has the same plot is how Nancy Collins describes it. And it's just, it was a very light story of a travelling swordsman who stops at an inn on a lonely, swampy moor in Scotland. And he gets kind of beset by the weird sort of innkeeper and his wife who are a little bit odd but he's not sure quite how and then one of the other guys in the tavern tells him a bit of a ghost story and then he's like okay thanks for uh giving me that backstory i'm now off to bed and uh, the story goes from there really short really punchy i think for the amount it's charged on kindle if you're a fan of the character you've already read robbie howard stuff you Oh, it's yourself. Give it, give it a go. It's genuinely, I think, of a similar tone and vibe to the original works. All right, Duncan, thank you for sharing. But we're not here to talk about Elric or Solomon Kane or even our Halloween costumes. We're here to talk about The Worm and His Kings by Hayley Piper. Duncan, can you give me the setup? What's the story? How does it begin? So this story, we follow the homeless woman Monique in New York mm. City. And she is going down to sort of like a tunnel on the subways, I get like an abandoned bridge underpass where all the sort of homeless people gather and she is looking for her girlfriend Donna, who they were both on the street together and about three months ago Donna just went missing and Monique is following the rumours that someone or something has been kidnapping homeless women around Liberty Tunnel. So she's going to investigate. 
Yeah, I'm really glad you've hit on that straight away, Duncan, because the character of Monique is actually really surprising right from the jump, because it was only was reading this story that I realized that I never really encounter stories about homeless people. You know, like, certainly not in the genre of fantasy, unless, of course, you're overly generous and you say that wandering ne'er-do-wells like Conan count, but no, like, in talking about the modern-day setting, this is not something that really gets explored that often, and this book, I think, does a really good job of inhabiting this character and showing these particular struggles. Yeah, you're quite right, and I'm trying to kind of flick through my catalogue in my head. Often when homelessness, particularly in sort of a modern setting, is approached, it's addressed as either sort of this temporary thing that the characters put on and and then often when you deal with non-fiction works then the homelessness often becomes very purely central to the plot that is something that we're here to talk about and while the homelessness of these characters and sort of how society has let them become like this is certainly a central theme homelessness itself i would not say is the discussion point more of a more of a facet of the larger discussion point if you get me it certainly isn't the most important antagonistic force in the story. That would be the cosmic worm. It, indeed, Duncan. The giant cosmic worm that reshapes reality. But before we get into that, we've briefly discussed the fact there's like this monster on the prowl. But that's not the first supernatural thing going on in the story, is it? There's also the empty place. Would you like to describe it? So the empty place... This is a really kind of interesting concept. It's one that I didn't really grab straight away. In fact, pretty much the whole novel for me to really grab this concept. So, Jordi, it was like explained it to you and you can be like, that's not what I got. Okay, the empty place is like... It's like this the space that is empty... But everyone, like, recognises it as, like, a space to be empty. You do not want to ex- go into this space. You want to leave this empty. Yeah, it's it's almost like a force field, but not a tangible one. Like, dust could blow in, wind could blow through it, and nothing could stop that. But no one can willingly allow themselves to enter into it. It's like this... It's it, it, it's described as sort of like an absence, but it's uh, because it's not like you're too scared to go in. You like you can't will yourself to step into nothingness. And I sort of get the impression that it's sort of uh, for like the common people. This is maybe I'm I'm reaching a bit more. I may much get the impression this may be that kind of thing that like the average person going about their lives don't even notice this kind of space exists. It kind of takes our characters to almost be like, oh, there's something wrong here. Uh, perhaps I I wondered um, because the the empty space is first appears in Liberty Tunnel, and it also shows up later. And Duncan is is that because and I might be wrong about this, the empty space can just appear in multiple locations, or is it because it's like a big tunnel going all out in one direction, and it just so happens that the empty place we run into later in the story is directly underneath Liberty Tunnel? Oh, that's a good question. 
Um, I'm not sure. I can had kind of two ideas. One is that is the empty place. This idea, it's almost like it's the cosmic worm. And we'll talk more about that later. It wants to come and exhibit exists within the empty place. So it's so I did think for a bit. Is it like following Monique a bit? Like this is the thing, the the non thing that's like got its eye on Monique in a non way. Or I did think maybe it's sort of meant to be a bit more of like a metaphor for like society, and it's like the empty place is in the tunnel because that's where like society's outcasts are going to live. It's the bit of place and where, where you like, don't want to look. Yeah, you don't want to look. You don't want to go there. There's nothing stopping you going down and helping these people. But there's just a bit in you that just doesn't want to do it. Maybe that that could work. I definitely don't think it is following Monique. I don't think that flies with the rest of the story, despite Monique's importance in the rest of the story. Um, the, the supernatural element kicks off extremely fast. Like, this is not a short story. Uh, sorry, this is not a long story. This is quite a brief one. I don't know how many pages it was for you, Duncan, but for me, it was like four and a half hours of listening. It's about 100 pages, I'd say, for yeah. me. Yeah, so it's um like right from the start, before we even really know who Donna is, aside from the fact that Monique wants to look for her, we um the, the, the monster just shows up. Monique guessed correctly, and she watches a another unhoused woman get snatched from um snatched from this camp, and then Monique chases it through the tunnels. Firstly, first, wow, Monique, she has such energy and just such absolutely crazy bravery in this. There's so yeah. many times where I'm just like, this is where a um, H.P. Lovecraft character would uh, collapse. And this is where I would just no power. <laughs> they would collapse and scream and vomit. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, is that as as it, the great thing is that it, it strikes this excellent, excellent balance in between. You really know the whole time, but Monique is extremely scared. But you can see the exact thought process she has to put herself through to keep pursuing the monster, to keep pursuing after. Did we figure out, Duncan, is it called the Grey Lady or the Grey Maiden? I, I finished the story yesterday, but... It's called the Grey Maiden. The Grey Maiden. I thought so. I thought so. Uh, she pursues the Grey Maiden. Who, by the way, it's interesting that the that Monique immediately identifies as a she and does so throughout the rest of the story. And that was quite interesting to me. And I can't really remember why she makes this assumption. That is an incredibly good question, and one that I'm not a hundred percent sure either. It certainly yeah. I don't know if it was if it was given because of certainly not from the visual description. I don't know if it's no. from the way it makes a noise or just an but maybe like the the noise is described as sort of being like a foghorn, um but it is like high pitched and stuff. I think really what happens is just that Monique somehow like precognizantly projects herself onto the gray maiden which later down the line you know she sort of rationalizes and thinks like she finds a sort of like kinship with the gray maiden it's interesting that it happens straight away before she knows anything about it or her rather i'm really sorry but i'm actually gonna have to uh 
roll back and actually fill in the blank here. Because we've discussed, like, why she identifies as a grey maiden. Mm. She doesn't. Okay. I've done a little research, and by that oh. I mean flip back to the start of the book. At the very start of the story, a gender-neutral term is used. It's called the grey hill. Is oh, how it yeah. starts. But, still uses a her, actually. Sorry. Yes, yes. yes grey hill did not take her time. Say, it's grey hill to begin with, and it's later grey maiden. But it is still, it is still her. Maybe it's her gate. Maybe she has a feminine gate as she's kidnapping women. I don't think this creature has, like, the right type of legs to be able to do anything we would describe as a gate. So, it's a, it's this brief pursuit through the tunnels and through the, um, through the city to before it reaches Empire Music Hall, uh, which, where, whereupon it slips inside with a hostage and Monique runs into... Uh, the character who I think really amplifies and enhances this story. Like, the interaction between Monique and this next character, I think, is the thing where I maybe sit up and go, oh, okay, we're in for something special here. Oh, Corinne. Yeah. I like this character. This me character too. gave me a vibe. Two things, actually, I really like about this character, Geordie. Number one, it felt like this character was perfect for the length of this story. Mm-hmm. Because you could tell the story from like Corinne's perspective. Corinne, to a certain extent, does give us a lot of information. Not a lot of information, but it's like, I've been doing a bit more investigation ahead of time. Let me catch you up on a few facts. Yeah. So Corinne you know. is the character in the Arthur C. Clarke or Stephen King story who, right towards the end, makes an absolutely huge leap in terms of, I've been thinking about it, and I now know that this is what is happening. Um, which is very unique to those two authors, and I guess also Haley Piper, where it's like a character makes a huge guess about what is going on and happens to be completely right. But what I really liked about that is it just felt right for this story because I'm just like, yes, you know... How long I'm here for. You know I'm here for an emotional story. This is a horror. I want to be engaged on that level. I don't need to read pages and pages of Monique's earlier investigations. Get Corin in. Give me the roundup. Make her fun. Make her believable. Let's get steaming. Let's get steaming. Sorry. Don't know why I said that. Let's get going. <laughs> what did you enjoy about her though? Like, is that why you liked her or did you have some other reasons? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she's just like a really fun breath of fresh air where Monique is this very introverted and withdrawn character. Corinne is immediately very bright and intelligent and chatty and in your face and is a character who can get Monique talking. Like, Monique would like to turn completely invisible and never be seen and yet Corinne is here to be like, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm looking for my pal, what are you doing here? Can we do this together? And it's able to be bossy around Monique in a way in which appears to be smart and effective, but is also deliciously, ironically, completely the wrong, completely the wrong approach. Because every time Monique blunders and makes a mistake, it's completely the right call and like is very helpful. And when Monique tries to be really smart and canny, it completely backfires. I mean, it's a very s- small level of humour, but it does lighten the tone in these kind of more darker moments. And yeah, I agree. Corinne has that bit more energy and I like it because it shows Monique, I think, kind of this perspective of, okay, 
I'm really shy. I can't quite like be like Corinne. But that doesn't, Corinne's not necessarily doing this the right way. You know, I'm doing this my way. I've got my reasons. I don't have to be out and loud and brash to be the main character and the hero in this scenario. And the thing that really brings it home is that Monique it acts as a foil to the as of yet unseen character of Donna. Donna is like central to the story right from the start, but we only have we're following breadcrumbs for a long time. And it's only once Corinne is in the picture that Donna can be sort of measured up to. And we start to learn who Donna is and what sort of relationship Monique and Donna had. Uh, and unfortunately, Monique doesn't realise that it's not a good one. No, she does not. And I think this is really well done on behalf of the author because a lot of this, we get it from beautifully done from Monique's perspective. Yeah. It, this is her looking at this relationship she has with this uh-huh. um, older woman. I do think that's kind of relevant because it affects sort of the power dynamic in their relationship yes that's absolutely very relevant donna is 42 and is 20. We get this monique's only perspective of donna is everything donna is why i'm doing this when we it gets reiterated through the horror elements when monique is trying to push away through she thinks about donna and what she needs to do for donna because donna means so much to her and then as we kind of get more and more of that it kind of tips over from you know, oh, I understand you. This person you love so much, they're in danger. You want to go rescue them. So, like, no, Monique, you're kind of obsessed, and Donna's not actually been a hundred percent here. Yeah, exactly. And you think like, and Donna is like the center of Monique's world, and that was a good description there, Duncan, because. That's that's exactly what happened. And you, the reader, can, through dramatic irony, you can see that, oh, actually, this is kind of predatory. You've taken advantage of an extremely young person um, and you you have made themself, yourself into the center of their universe because you're so much smarter and you're so much more sophisticated than them that you can wrap them around your little finger. Like, the year is 1990. And Donna loses her job in a law firm because she's having a relationship, a uh, a queer relationship, you know. But also, she probably should still lose her job because the, the person she's in a relationship with is young enough to be her child. I mean, it's certainly something that I, I did struggle a little bit engaging with the times. I am not particularly clued up on 1990s American culture towards LGBTQ plus community. Other than I don't think it was particularly amazing. Yeah, Duncan, uh, the AIDS pandemic was going on. So I really get that. I do also get the idea in some more abstract way of like, okay, you both sort of relate for being on the outside of mainstream society. Mm -hmm. And I see that. And the thing is, Donna does do certain like really good things for Monique. You know, she's clearly prepared to sacrifice a lot of her sort of life to be with Monique. And there's mm-hmm. a really touching moment, you know, a uh, flashback story where we get that, you know, Donna saved Monique's life, mm-hmm. effectively, from an incredibly horrific and I think almost like too real compared to the rest of the horror in the book scene with mm. a crazed doctor that wants to steal her kidney. So you can see that. You can see that, okay, this person isn't like completely outwardly evil, but they aren't in a healthy relationship. 
And mm-hmm. you can see that how, because the person isn't actively horrific, how that's enough for Monique to kind of have that, her own perspective of Don is so great. Yeah. So it's, what we're getting at is that this is a really sophisticated and well-written relationship where it's, from the start, incredibly potent and you want to see it concluded and you want to believe in Donna because Monique believes in Donna, but also you can look at it with a critical eye and go, ooh, I'm not so sure about this. I'm having complicated feelings. I think that's complicated feelings what really works because not everything that happens with Donna, obviously we get through the course of the story, things, more things are revealed to us that make you go very definitively, yes, Donna, not <laughs> yes. good. Not but good. early on, a lot of these sort of things that you can kind of go, pick in terms of like relationship, language, oh, red flag, red flag, are yeah, yeah, deal yeah. breakers. You know, this could be a healthy relationship. It You're not sure. Be. And it's so beautifully handled by Hayley Piper. We're like, okay, that's a bit of a red flag, but it's not a deal breaker. No, exactly. Yeah, you're sort of led along, you're fed, as with so much of a story, you're fed little clues along the way, which you can start to put together. And it's set up in such a way where it's never like a twist. Or rather, there are twists in this story, but they're always twists where you go, mm-hmm-hmm, and you feel very clever about yourself, as opposed to ones where you go, <gasps> And that works so well in the horror, because you can kind of feel it coming, and you get that like tension, like, Oh no, we're getting closer mm-hmm. to like finally meeting Donna. Oh, this that's isn't right, going to go down right. well. Oh, and it kind of twists up inside you. Really nicely done. Now, in terms of genre of horror here, we have obviously overall it is a cosmic horror. There is a big worm. Um, but also, and you've dabbled in, there is body horror. There is the manipulation of the flesh. But it's also. Um, a personal favourite type of horror, which is the happy-go-lucky, quirky cult horror. Yes, the favourite of the Wicker Man. Very enjoyable. Very enjoyable. Good welcome to Night Vale energy with the character of Lady. I do love Lady. <laughs> Lady is so stupid, but I love her. <laughs> so, one thing I really like about kind of the trope, and we introduce here, so Monique and Corinne, they discover underneath this music hall lives this cult that sing to bring forth the worm from the cosmic void. And all the cult members are very cheerful and happy to be there. And they all have the kind of stories of like, well, we're sort of social outcasts. Society is wrong and not good. And we just want the worm to come forth and recreate it. And I really like this from so many kind of perspectives. I like the fact that because we're with Monique, you're like, actually, yeah. Society is really unfair to Monique. Society does have some flaws. Doesn't mean we should get a cosmic being in here to destroy it. Nonetheless, I do vibe. Also, I like the cheerfulness. Because how are she meant to get people to join an organisation? Unless you're, like, actually welcoming. I mean, absolutely. Like, all cults prey upon vulnerable people. That's the whole point. Like, Monique, to me, is a great example of a main character... Uh, who would be drawn to a cult because she's young, uh, she's she's poor, she's she's unhoused, she's queer, she's in so she has no parents in her life. Her main relationship is gone. She's in so many things that make her vulnerable to being dragged into a cult. Like this is the profile of someone who's most likely to get swept up into something like this. 
And so, so again, that is like a, a clever point of view to say, this is the adversary. I'm going to put my main character up against something that could easily suck her in. And so in that way, Lady sort of represents like a twisted version of Monique, someone who has been dragged into this cult. And what I really like about this, what I really like is that, like you said, Duncan, from the perspective of the reader, looking at it through Monique's eyes, the question is, if we're opposing the cult, the cult of the bad guys, what is Monique going to stand up for? Because is Monique really going to say, no, 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 don't destroy society. There is something in society worth saving. Is that really something Monique would say when Monique is so um, on the outside, when Monique is so disenfranchised? And I don't want to address it now, but the actual conclusion, what story comes to, the answer to that question is so bold and is so strong that it's my favourite part of the story. I mean, also to skirt around it, but yes, totally agree. It's amazingly done. And it's something that I always sometimes really get. There's something, there's particularly, I'm trying to think of a really good example where, oh, I'm trying to think of an example in media, where like the villains got their plan of like, oh, society's evil and corrupt. And he was like, you don't see the good in it, you know. We can make it change. Like, we can do. You'd have to burn down. Star Wars, there we go. The Republic's too okay. evil and corrupt. It must be reforged. And there's this point you're mm-hmm. like, well, you know, it is. So we should probably, like, actually do something. I think that's where it often falls down, is the idea of, like, well, what they're proposing is clearly wrong. Like, their methodology yeah. is bad. But we need to uh-huh. properly accept the fact that their motivations are not. Yeah, so this is the classic example of this, and the best example, and people talk about this all the time, is the Harry Potter books. Like... The wizarding world that Harry Potter lives in is awful. It's horrible. Like, it has actual chattel slavery. Like, there are disenfranchised racial groups. And no one wants to do anything to, to change that. And and Hermione sets up spew to save the elves. And everyone laughs and it's a big joke. Like, activism is just bad in the world of Harry Potter. And the only force in the world that wants to change things, really, is Voldemort. Because he wants to bring about ethno-state fasc- fascism. And Harry Potter's main goal is just to stop that from happening. But he doesn't actually change society. You know, like the world doesn't get better through his actions. It just fails to get worse. And so why was that society actually worth saving if you don't want to change it? If you don't want to make it better? I think it, I think a lot of this often comes down to that. There is a lot harder to write about stories where the characters change the status quo. Because mm-hmm. in the world... There's very few examples of that really happening. Yeah, Yeah. and it's difficult. Like, we talked about this when we were talking about Children of Virtue and Vengeance. Like, we're talking about, like, active, violent, political revolution of that story. And we have a concern where we go, so, you guys, you promise you're not going to form your own ethno-state, right? Because you want to just put one racial group in charge of a whole country. Like, this is the right choice, isn't it? Guys? Guys? It goes back. There's a great um, book coming out at the moment by David Mitchell. I say it's a great book. It's getting great reviews. I really want to read it called Unruly. And he's talked a Mm. lot on his promotional campaign about the ideas of kingship and English kings. And this Mm. really great thing he said in an interview that really resonated with me and I related over moving over to fantasy, which is just like, fundamentally, by modern standards, 
all kings are awful. Like, that's just out of the way. Like, we've got to understand. It's just horrible. So when we try to yeah. judge or talk about kingship, like, it just automatically goes to a completely different standard. It's like when you're watching, like, Game of Thrones and you're like, oh, obviously before it finished. Oh, who do I want to be on the throne? And you're like, well, fundamentally, I don't want there to be a dictatorship throne system in this country, but that's not an option. So, yeah, which one of yeah. these mass murderers d- is my fave? Exactly. What were we talking about? I've complete <laughs> changing the status quo, and the fact is status that quo. in Worms. this story, does a really good job of presenting this cult who are saying the status quo is wrong, and we want to upset it and overthrow it and rebuild it. And Monique from isn't arguing at any point that the status quo is worth maintaining. That's not her mm. counter argument. Exactly, she's completely you know, um, parallel to the whole thing. Like She's just like, I, I'm not focusing on the big picture. I'm so desperate, but I can't see the big picture. I just want the things in my life which I've had the most, and that's Donna. Please give me my Donna. Do you want to get to her Donna? Yeah, so to briefly go over what happens next, uh, by stumbling around, Monique accidentally learns about the secret history of the world, which is like one of my favorite parts of his story. Um, and then by trying to be extremely clever, uh, Corinne gets herself captured. Classic Corinne. Yeah, classic Corinne. I, I, I just love how it's just a lovely little small twist of the story that like, I don't, I'm not going to dive into it too much, but I do want to dive into before we get to Donna is I want to talk about the secret history of the world because this is my favorite. And actually, now that I say it, Duncan, I do think at a certain point this, this story might actually be a bit more science fiction than it was fantasy. But there was a bit in it where some skeletons came to life and that happens in fantasy, not science fiction. So this is definitely fantasy. So you're about to talk about the world building. Yes. An element of yes, fantasy sp- fiction that you've bashed in the past. I don't I wouldn't define really this as world building. I would say this is more This is not world building. <laughs> this is this is plot. Plot. This is plot, not world building. World building is when you get the sense of an expansive world. This is just super necessary to the themes of the story. And basically Back in the age of Pangaea, it turns out there was a sapient society living on Pangaea for millions of years, and they had their own society, and it was all great, and then the worm came, the worm that purifies the universe, and they worshipped the worm as a god, until it are and it created kingdoms on this Pangaea, where it previously had none, it civilized them, basically. And then when it re-emerged, it asked the kings to be given a daughter so that it could have a bride and have babies. And one of the kings refused. And, and, and in revenge, the worm shattered the continent, creating the other continents, and erased them from time. That society has no longer existed. It existed once in another time, and now there is nothing. There are now only, like, refugees from another time stuck in our world, having waited millions of years for humanity to replace them. Quite intense. Yeah, and as a science fantasy concept, it's novel and fucking awesome. 
The concept of erasing the timeline, I think I really get lends to the power of this cosmic being. Quite often I feel like, what is this cosmic being other than like a really, 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 really big monster? But this kind of shows that to the worm, to the creature that kind of lives in the void, time is very subjective, doesn't matter. It didn't just destroy their civilization at the point of insult. It reached back in time and destroyed it before it even exactly. rose. Amazing. Also, shows that the worm has like a real consciousness and a real attitude. And it's really vindictive. Yeah, maybe. So, to skip around a little bit, because the funny thing is we could get bogged down in the details of the story, but I'm really more interested in the big picture. The beat-by-beat, moment-to-moment stuff is really strong. Um, And I don't... There's a lot of... Yeah. Really good kind of small... I can't say like horror vignettes. You get lovely little moments where it kind of lends... Going back to like Lovecraft. You know, Lovecraft, I mentioned in our last episode, the mu- music of Elric Zahn. And there's a great scene in this where, again, kind of music and yes. horror-filled reverberations um, is used to great effect. And there's also just a lot of scenes. Going back to like very traditional, almost sword and sorcery kind of fantasy where Monique is running about a dungeon. Yes, running around in tunnels, very Jarell of Joyry. Yeah, being chased by kind of like horrific creatures and running into weird, dark imagery. Mm. And it's cool. It is cool. I I think that's right. Horror vignette is the right way to go. It it samples a lot of different types of horror and it sprinkles them throughout. I think that the the three things... I I don't know why I said three, because I have no idea how many I'm actually going to say. I think the things I really want to focus on is her interactions with Donna when she finds her, the return of Corinne, the character of Mimic, and the big reveal. And of course, the finale. The finale is amazing. Right. I want to jump on Mimic. Yeah. Because I've done nothing but sing praise to this story. And Mimic is one of the few things that actually I'm a bit like, not sure. Yeah, I know what you mean, added. Mimic as a character is so abrupt in in their introduction that it almost feels like... And in their execution. And I feel like I almost missed a page, you know? Like, I'm like, was there like a chapter that I missed here? So Mimic is one of a number of creatures that lives in the underground beneath the Empire Theatre called... Was it the, the the city of old time? It's just called old time. It's a place called old time, which is like a fragment of that lost era that still remains beneath the world. And she and her brethren are the um the last remaining survivors of that lost civilization. They look a bit like the Grey Maiden, but they're smaller. And for some reason, they just really like Monique. Yeah, they're non-hostile. And this main one, Mimic, just mimics what Monique does. And follows her about. Mimic doesn't say anything. She doesn't really exhibit much more of character other than just being non-hostile. Which, at this point in the story, is like, great, you're you're my new best friend. (laughs) To be honest, you're right. Just Mimic just not being a dick. Or not being confusing or abusive you're like ha oh, what a what an angel it's so glad to have you here mimic and this is kind of the issue i have with mimic 
okay, maybe it's introduced. Cool, interesting setup. You're a non-hostile force. I never felt that Mimic was sufficiently useful in the plot in such a way that I'm like, oh, you needed another character there for Monique to work. I didn't really feel like Mimic led to that much character growth from Monique. I mean, and ultimately, I just don't know what the what what was the thematic character arcing point of Mimic. Well, I don't think that it like reflects on Monique. You're right. You're right about that. Like the Grey Maiden does have a sort of like symmetry with Monique, which we can get into in a bit. Uh, Mimic doesn't have that same sort of like symbolic relationship. I think Mimic really sort of works better as like a um. Uh, an example of a citizen of lost time, like the, the actions, the, the like Monique's drive towards the end of the story and her, um, you know, the decision she makes at the end is sort of for the sake of Mimic and her people. So, yeah, yeah, I can see it works like that. And I think the story would be worse without Mimic because it wouldn't be as motivated. I can see that because without Mimic, all we kind of see of old time is the Grey Maiden. Yes. Who's a horrific monster. And so we're kind of... And not worth saving. Yeah, effectively. So it kind of makes you go, okay, this is something that I can like from old time to make you think, you know, there were good beings then. They weren't all aggressive. So, okay, I do see how that links in. I didn't dislike Mimic, but I think it was definitely the weaker element of what else I think was a very, very strong story. So, so okay, that's one of my weaker points. Let's go back to a really strong point. We mentioned earlier that the relationship between Monique and Donna, all these red flags keep going up, and you get that kind of twisty feeling in your stomach, you think, oh, something's not right. And then finally, Monique meets Donna, Deep in this old-time catacomb, she finds her. Donna is sat at a table in this great kind of cathedral to the worm. Geordie, what happens? So it's it's sort of a two-stage operation in terms of what happens. Because the first thing that happens is that it's it's a nice reunion, actually. It's it's pleasant. You're, You're enjoying yourself, which should be the first sign that something is deeply amiss. Um, and they're happy to see each other. And Monique is like, I'm here to rescue you. And Donna says, I can't be rescued because I haven't been dismissed. And then Donna reveals that she is the bride of the worm. She is the one who's been selected to bear the worm's children. And she cannot leave until she's been dismissed. Donna has been indoctrinated by this cult. And she, she's been brainwashed. And she is a true believer now. A couple of things that I really enjoy about this. Number one, Donna. Excellent. It fits with her character. Donna likes the feelings of power. And this cult has basically served that to her. They said, you can be the special. Mm. You can be so important. And I felt this was such a natural click with everything we've been told about Donna up to this point. Yeah. She was, was once like, a yeah, high-powered lawyer. I get it. She lost everything. She fell on like the, the lowest point she could possibly fall to. And now she's been given a chance to be important again. And what I love just so much more mm. is how Monique is twisting everything in her brain to be like, 
I was still safe, Donna. She's been indoctrinated, but I can save her yep, from this cult. Absolutely. I just need to drag her away mm. and then she'll be all right and she'll be my Donna again. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Monique, you poor, poor soul. Mm. I love this place. And I'm not like I love her suffering, but it is no, just No, but so... you're right. It's, it's, I mean, stories are a mechanism and often, and suffering is an important thing we see characters go through in order to achieve catharsis. And definitely Monique gets put through the emotional ringer in this story and um and physical boy howdy <laughs> so uh, so a great thing about this scene is that it's it's, it's sort of a, a, it's a one two three punch you you have the initial scene where you find out oh no don has been indoctrinated and then you have a reunion with corinne who's been possessed by like ancient shards of old time and is dying she found the man she's in love with who she was searching for, but he's already dead. But together, they put together the truth of the matter, and they don't believe that the worm is like an entity. They think it's just a physical phenomena. And this is where I went, oh no, is this book sci-fi? Am I going to get in trouble? No. I still feel like it has a mind. Yes, I do too. Then how- this is, I mean, this is my favorite part of a an Arthur C. Clarke Stephen King fantasy where they make an assumption based on how something works, and they're wrong. Nope, it was Cthulhu after all. I like it though. I like them trying to recontextualize it, but from what we kind of see from the rest of the story, it clearly is a conscious thing because it can be petty. <laughs> by not only like i said wiping out it didn't just come in this force that came into being yeah. looking for a bride and then when it didn't find one it just like went kaboom it was like no i asked for this you not give i'm gonna go back in time Absolutely. And it has an ego but but the important thing about this conversation with corinne is that it's it serves as it serves two purposes one it gives uh monique a reason to say this might all be made up. This might all be complete paranoia, and therefore I can just drag Donna away. There's no entity to actually fear. But also, it's this this profound moment of uh, building up the legend of Monique. Because up till now, we've seen Monique really be pushed through all these these miserable affairs and feel terrible the whole time. And it takes an exterior character in Corinne to say... Everything you've done up to now, I'm going to retextualize it and show that it shows how compassionate and brave you are. And it's and you, because you're so in Monique's head and you see her through her own eyes so much, it's actually a really enlightening and heartwarming experience to see someone deliver words of positive affirmation. And you also realize that this is probably the first positive affirmation she's received from anyone who wasn't Donna. And that maybe if she received words and love like this more often, she wouldn't need to rely on Donna so much. It's that kind of moment for Monique has put Donna on such a pedestal. Yeah. That she doesn't even give her credit for all the amazing things that she's done. Exactly. That she's pushed through. Because it talks about, oh, Donna, she lost anything, end up on the street. You're like, Monique, you had nothing. And lost everything and ended up on the street. Yeah, and when and Donna fell first and fell on Monique, like she ended up living in Monique's apartment, and Monique was the one supporting them. And Monique never would ever say, "Yeah, I helped Donna," but she did help Donna. Donna needed help, and Monique gave it. 
And when you look back to all the, the kind of work she does, not even in this story, but like throughout the time, the fact that Monique is living in this society. Mm-hmm. And this is a point that we haven't properly addressed yet, Geordie. No, and we've been deliberately holding off on this because it is a secret. It is, the story holds this back from us, and it's up to us to realise this ahead of time. Monique is a trans woman. That's right. And it makes such a powerful message because it kind of, this is moment of like, Monique had the strength to live as a trans woman despite what society was doing to her mm-hmm. or was going to treat her because of it. Yeah. And Monique doesn't, I think, see that as like a strength. She sees, oh, I couldn't do it without Donna. It's like, no, but you made that active decision. Yes, there was this, this wonderful moment in the story where Corinne talks about what it takes to quit, how sometimes quitting requires so much more courage than staying. In this moment, she's trying to get Monique to just leave, to say no to Donna and go home and live her own life. And she says, you know, like, you had to quit living as a boy. And that took a lot more courage than it did to to not quit, to keep living up that lie, didn't it? And it's something that, to do the comparison, the character of Donna never had to do. And no. never is it really given that extra emphasis. Because Donna, and you can see how Monique, in the early part of the story, Monique only thinks about Donna and how Donna made the sacrifice, you know, being in an openly gay relationship oh, she just gave it all up and like and Monique doesn't tell us the reader the author chooses to withhold this because Monique isn't thinking about that Monique at one point thinks about oh it's really painful uh, when I urinate Monique thinks at certain points about the horrible experience she had with the doctor yeah that performed surgery on her but mm-hmm. Monique isn't thinking about what she's been through or what she's done and achieved because mm-hmm. that's not what's on her mind. And it seems so naturally done to be hidden mm-hmm. from us. I think this is what really worked for me and what I really admire in Hey Piper as an author is that it didn't feel too much in any real way that the author was arbitrarily like hiding this from me as a reader. It felt quite natural to me that Monique wasn't having these thoughts. Yeah. Duncan, when when did you feel like you sort of had it figured out? When did I feel figured out? Okay, so I went through two stage of theories. One, mm. I knew when she was talking about like an operation, I was thinking first was like, oh, was, was this like cancer? You know, that okay. that was generally my first thought. Okay, you had an operation, it kind of went wrong. And I think I had it figured out. I think just as we sort of, just before we kind of entered the old time labyrinth, Mm. I settled on this, my guess. I didn't know, but I, I yeah. kind of put the chips down. I was like, okay, gay somewhat. I I get the vibe for like the type of story you're telling. I think that would be the perfect decision for this mm. character. For me, it was the second time it was mentioned that she had multiple scarves. I was thinking like, why do you have multiple scarves? The first time I read through, I was like, is this because it's cold and you're homeless and you need as many scarves as you can get? The second time, I was like, you're wearing a beanie and two scarves? This person's trans. I can tell. This is what happens when you can't get hormones. You need to cover yourself up. Oh. Well, that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, it just genuinely was like, I, I, I wasn't a certain thing, but it was like, I'm 75% sure that I'm right on this. And then I just, it just went up in like increments of two to 3% as time went on being like, I'm just getting a vibe here. I'm just, I'm just feeling this through and yeah, yeah, I think this checks out. No, see, now you make me really want to reread this, but knowing and seeing, you know, knowing about kind the of, scars. Yeah. And thinking through all the little details. Oh, that's really well done. I, I think this clearly, and I don't know, I haven't actually Googled Hayley Piper. I'm going to say that they have a very good understanding of, it feels like, again, I don't know personally, a good understanding of the trans experience, if either they are or have people very close in their lives who have gone through it. To yeah, it, really it's hard of- to say because um, my experiences of stories that centre around trans people, this is the first time when it's been like, so it's not the first time I've like read a story from with a character who is trans and it's told from their perspective. But I know for a fact the previous author that I read it from was cis and like I think it's and like it's a sort of like golf clap moment where people are like, Yes, 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 you did you did a good job. But I don't think it's like a standing ovation sort of thing, like, yes, you nailed it, this is what it's about. And the other times they're like side characters and therefore you don't see inside their head. But I thought a lot of this stuff was done in a very subtle way, like the way in which it is sort of held back from the reader. It's it's sort of like you only realize it over time. You have to pick up on certain cues. The one thing I will say about it is that for the continuity of this podcast, it is disappointing that our first main character who is trans that we're going to look at and actually looking back. Is this our first trans character who's appeared in any of the stories we've looked at in the um, in the podcast so far, Duncan? I'm going to say yes. I'm also going to say yes. So the first trans character we've encountered, it, it is disappointing that the first one is the one who has like a body horror story about an operation gone wrong and a very and a pretty unsuccessful sex change operation that's that is a bummer isn't it like it would be nice it would be nicer if we'd had like oh we've got a nice more content character to begin with but hopefully we will just stumble across another one and in fact i know we will because one of the books i want to do in a podcast has like good depiction of trans characters from a very queer perspective while that is definitely an element, I do think it's there's nothing wrong with this sort of work being written because this is an element that I'm sure, you know, this is just an experience that people have gone through. Yes. So it's not something that I want to be buried or kind of banished from text. Uh, and- no, 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 no. I'm not saying there's anything wrong or problematic with it or that it shouldn't have been written. I just think that so much of the language or the discourse around trans people these days has to do with transphobes using the word mutilation. That it's sad that our first encounter with it involves a mutilation, you know? And I think that's more so a case that it's it's bad that we haven't gone our way to pick a book previously. I think that's really where it's like, yeah, we should have addressed this sooner. That would have been great. I didn't even know this story was about trans people, man. Well, it hides it from you, doesn't it? I it didn't does. know until like page seventy. I, I made a very, I made a very salt. I was like, aha, this is this this is gonna be good. We're gonna have, we're gonna really rock H.P. Lovecraft's world this time. This is about a lesbian love story, and I turns out it, th- it is about lesbians, but it's not a love story. And it 
still approaches the matter really well. I've really enjoyed this kind of aspect to it and it really kind of hammered home the feelings of this person being on the outside of society so well by having this dynamic on the character. I couldn't think of another way where I think they could equally feel outside. Imagine this story where it was simply they were simply sort of the social outsider. Oh, yeah, you know, sure. you don't you don't do the pop you don't follow the popular trends, you're into indie rock. Mm. <laughs> no, you this know, is a character it, it who needs to be something like this. The most vulnerable person in twenty twenty society thirty years ago. That is a fucking a lonely place. But where does this character go, Dordie? Yes. So after she gets her message of, listen, just take your daughter and get out of here from Corinne, shortly before Corinne's going to die, Monique rushes back and says, Donna, I-, I really am. I'm going to do it. I'm going to save you. And Donna says, actually, no, you're not. And it turns out that Monique has been deceived completely. Donna is not the bride at a worm. Donna is the king. That's why she chose to stay, because when she found out she could be the king, she went, well, that's just fine by me, and I know exactly who should be the bride of a worm. Firstly, the betrayal element is, as I said, built up beautifully. Yes, it did give me a little bit of, like, Wicker Man vibes, of, like, oh, oh, dear... They're all against us. I really enjoyed this film because it fits so well with mm-hmm. Donna's character. But I really enjoyed Monique's like very quick sort of um, arc through this. Through like the opening, I wouldn't say it's like the stages of grief so much, but we get this sort of like heartbreak. No, Donna, why, why, why? And then I love the fact when we get through to like just angry denial. Yeah, but also, I, I I really want to focus on this one bit in the middle where it's initial, like, disbelief, then it's struggling, no, 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 don't do this, and then it's this, this profound period of coldness, this numbness, where they're like, they can barely feel anything and everything's described in a very abstract, haunting way, until finally it starts to bubble up and Monique starts to get defiant. I think the defiance that we get of Monique, such a character who's been so just petite in like every kind of sense throughout this story Uh, from Mm -hmm. her own perspective obviously her actions have always been so really brave Mm -hmm. finally kind of have that internal like fortitude of being like no i am brave i am strong screw you guys exactly and it it is just this like petty i will just fucking break everything that matters to you Uh, it feels so cathartic to be like yes fuck it up like, get this is mad, bit of like get even. When the cult comes in and they're like doing the horrific choir and Monique is like, I'm just going to yell into this void. Yeah. I don't care. I will throw things, I will have a tantrum and you're just like, yes, you deserve this, Monique. You deserve to be able to just throw things about. It's it's so true. It's so true. You're so behind Monique at this point that even though a lot of this stuff is actually kind of ineffectual, you just don't care. You're just glad that she's woken up from the spell. And the way in which this last part plays out is so darkly fascinating because there is... So, okay, I'll say this. There is this film I watched once. I think it's called The Gambler or something. Uh, I'll put in what it's actually called, but... Win It All, 2017, starring Jake Johnson. 
it's a very funny movie um it's about an, a gambling addict and he he comes into a bunch of ill-gotten money like from a drug deal a guy asks him to look after his money don't do anything with it unfortunately this guy is a huge gambler and he immediately blows a ton of his money and the rest of a movie is he has to win back more money by gambling in order to replace this stolen money otherwise a drug dealer is going to kill him and the best bit is, is at the end of the movie he goes to this like high high rollers casino place he gets on a hot streak he wins a ton of money and he he gets enough and he finally pays it all back and he's he's walking out the door and then he tells his friends i'm just gonna go back one more time I'm just going to go back one more time and I'm just going to hit it a little bit more. And he, he starts to get a chest pain and the drums in the background are just really something. And he's trying to go back to the table and you realize the character is having a heart attack. And it's the only time in a, mo- in a movie fitting experience that my mum, my dad and I were yelling at the screen saying, have a heart attack. Have a heart attack, yes! Because if he has a heart attack, he can't go back to the table. And that is what happens at the end of the story. I... Uh, uh, yes? Yes! There's a bit in this where Monique is climbing up. He manages to find a way to climb up the wall to try and escape. And the Grey Maiden, like, picks her up and s- throws her back into the pit. And she falls onto the throne of the worm inside the empty place and shatters her spine and you're like oh no monique you can't escape now and then there's this slow moment of wonderful realization when all the characters realize that you cannot willingly enter the empty place but if you're thrown by accident that wasn't willing and monique would be like psychically compelled to get out and leave the empty space. But she just broke her spine. So she can't. And this has fucked up the entire ritual. So you're saying you've never been so happy to read about your hard done by marginalized abused main character yes. having their spine yes. broken. Yes, it's so weird. It's so weird being like, yes gotcha take that bad guys my main character's spine broke what are you gonna do now it does fit to the point where you're like you're just so cathartic to just mess with these stuck up cultists and he's just egotistical asses that you're like yeah isn't it so fantastic who cares that like we're getting destroyed we we were basically monique was doomed anyway better to die Mm -hmm. and ruin your lives and it's that exact level of pettiness that I'd expect of the web nurse going too far, but links in. So, so uh, there is there, there is a line in um, there is a line in the Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings movie, which is great. It's not from the books. When when someone says we have no hope after the death of Gandalf, and Aragorn says, "But we must do without hope. There is always vengeance." <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that line in like the Peter Jackson version. I don't mean that Algon had that much of an edge. I would love to see that. I do like the elements, particularly with our, like when you're getting like good and like main characters, and they sometimes in certain fiction, particularly some of the ones maybe targeted towards certainly younger readers, it's always like you just gotta be hopeful, you just gotta be good, you gotta be pure at heart. And so I'm just like, do you know what? 
For all we're fighting on the right side and we're doing we're doing the good fight, can we please just be mean and spiteful? <laughs> like, come on. So, and and that spite manifests itself in this wonderful moment at the end. Um, but mimic and the other like underground people from the a- from the age before. It turns out they were like the other princesses. They're the other children of the kings of the past. And um, the Grey Maiden was the daughter of the ki- of the queen who was taken by the worm. It, it, it's very relevant and resonant and all that. And um, and they like complete the song after the cultists like, oh no, the ritual's going bad. They continue the song and they like they again out of spite they say no. You wanted this ritual. The ritual's happening. Try and stop it. And the ritual's completed. And the worm appears in the same place as Monique. And the two of them fuse together and become one entity, one ego. And Monique becomes the worm. And then Monique, in a move that I just want to call baller, and that didn't bother me in the slightest, makes just the best decision ever. It is so emotionally profound and huge and like awe-inspiring how bold the end of this, this story is monique destroys the world yes she does all of human civilization she's just like no sod it yeah wipes it all out and then like i'm just gonna return it i do i didn't right this there's a lot of jumping about here but i think she basically wipes yeah. out human civilization Shoots through time to, like, watch Donna die of old age. And then it's like, cool, I'm going to go and re-establish Pangaea and the kingdoms and rock Uh myself over there and then fly off into the cosmos. So what specifically happens is that she destroys, like, everyone in the cult except for Donna. Everyone else, she turns them to stone and she sinks them into the floor. She destroys old time. She sinks it. And then she doesn't destroy the Earth. She lets it play out. And she just zips forward in time to the death of Donna. In like, like the age of 80 or whatever. With another younger woman sat by her side. And just almost haphazardly, almost without mentioning it, says uh, she's one of the last people to grow old. And out the window, society has collapsed. And the bad news, Duncan, is that... If Donna's 40 here and like she's dying of old age, that means she's probably like 80 or 90 at so that means that in 2030, 2040, society's gonna be over and that's not that far away. Is in prediction. And assuming that she's the last one to grow old, let's say that most people aren't gonna live out like an extra twenty to thirty years after that, tops. Exactly. Yeah. So we're in real trouble, man. We're in real trouble. Um, but then she just leaves Earth. She just goes off into the cosmos and just forgets about our little planet until the end of time itself. And she goes through a wormhole and zips back to the start of the universe. And as you said, she goes back to Pangaea. She approaches the people who worship the worm and says, hey, um, I changed my mind. You guys, uh, you don't have to worship me. And you don't have to give me a daughter, and I'm not going to smash the supercontinent, and I'm going to give the cosmos back to you. Because 
And this is this moment where what does Monique choose to do? Does she choose to destroy society? No, she lets it play out. She says, you want, society's going to do what it does, and I'm not going to be a part of it. What I am going to do is I'm going to restore cosmic justice. The Earth belonged to these people. They were here first, and they had their potential destroyed in an, in an act of brutality, which was completely unfair, and I'm going to set it right. And in doing so, destroys all of human civilization. All gone, in a flash. Unmade. So, when I said that destroys the Earth, I think that is... That's the thing, it's like, she destroys... She doesn't... Does she say wait? It's not that she destroys our Earth, because I did get a little bit confused. I did think that... She was related to, like, the apocalypse, but it does appear that just plays out anyway. No, the apocalypse, I think, is completely just going to happen. So she just decides the active decision that leads to the rise of, like, humanity and our civilization. she just doesn't take. She lets these people have their fair chance and take their shot. And then goes off to be a good god. Like, a positive cosmic being. I wonder about, yeah, just, just wanders off into the universe to just be to be part of the cosmos and that's the end of the story it's so bold and it is a and it's so i mean it's like what is it positive nihilism right cosmic horror at its root is about nihilism it is about the fear of being small and insignificant and the end of a story is about the ultimate act of capriciousness to destroy every human who ever lived every dinosaur every mammoth all gone all the mammals in an act of cosmic retribution. It's it's darkly beautiful in a really profound and strange way. The ultimate act of rebellion and defiance. It's really upbeat for a horror? It is, it is. I mean, it is almost like it is truly speaking, like she is taking on the role of an elder god. She destroys humanity and yet because of how dark and sinister it was and how much it threatens on the border of nihilism, it's a positive moment of nihilism where these people get another chance. These people who lived long ago and had their own society, you want, you're rooting for them and you say, fuck humanity. <laughs> fuck them. I find that really cathartic. There are certainly moments when you watch the news I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake, humanity. And I really like... The fact that she doesn't bring about the direct destruction of humanity. She lets it play out. We destroy ourselves. And because she kind of goes back in time and yeah. like just doesn't give the opportunity to start, it just sets this slightly more idea off with that. We had our shot. We existed. Now they get their shot. Mm-hmm. The fact that it's sort of exactly. recording. Yeah. Cosmic justice. And I think it also lends into the small idea, though, that on another kind of scale and perspective... She's just like every other eldritch god that's ever been written about. Yes, absolutely. She just doesn't matter. Different perspective. You can't comprehend humanity. Sorry, your civilization has been ceased to have ever existed. If you knew the big picture, you'd understand. Great story. Short and sweet. I mean, not sweet, but short and bittersweet. Like in a, in a really good way. So, recommendations... If you are interested in any kind of cosmic horror, absolutely check this out. It is a um it could be potentially triggering for folks who have 
issues with um, body dysmorphia, perhaps. It also could be cathartic, I don't know. But just bear in mind that, like, a big feature of a story is a botched sex sex change surgery. So just bear that in mind. If you think that'd be like, oh, no, I couldn't handle that. Be aware. Be aware of that. It's not done in, like, a dark and transphobic way. It's done to be positive, but, you know. For someone who only last week read uh, their first real, like, big, slightly larger H.P. Lovecraft story and we wanted to step into cosmic horror... I prefer this story on pretty much every perspective to the Shadow of the Intermouth and pretty much all the H.P. Lovecraft that I've actually ever read. To be really honest, if someone was coming fresh and like, I just want to taste what cosmic horror can be, I would recommend this over H.P. Lovecraft. Just all of it. Read this. I mean, I, I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't disagree. I think this really defines cosmic horror in a way which... um. Those stories don't. I think the best thing that that H.P. Uh, Lovecraft ever wrote in regards to cosmic horror are the opening lines to Call of Cthulhu and nothing else. Say we are in uh, in we are a small island in a great ocean of ignorance, and we were not meant to stray too far. And the funny thing about that is that I completely fucking disagree with it, because I'm a curious person, and H.P. Lovecraft wasn't. And uh, I don't find the idea of knowing too much to be scary, not at all. So. So shall we now push on outside our spooky book club month and look at the new yes. dawn? We say goodbye to the book club. I miss it already, Duncan. Don't worry, it will come around sooner than you think. Do you know this book has a sequel? Does it? Uh, according to Kindle, it does. Interesting. Is it about the Pangaea continent? What's it called? I cannot remember. Let me actually look it up quickly and then you can slot in that me actually are you sure it's a sequel and not kindle just going you read this you might also like this even the worm will turn four years after the events of the worm and his kings donna ashton eats out a life father moves from her troubled past well i'll fucking be well i guess we know what we're reading next week I really kind of want to, but I actually did have something else in mind that I've been so excited for, and I can't bring myself quite enough to stray from it. But, Geordie, we will come back to this. Well, Duncan, this better be a good one. This better be a good one. This is something that I've heard a lot of positive praise for, and I've been meaning to read for a good long while. Okay, good. I think most people probably would have actually read this one before I have. I think this is something that a lot of people are like, yeah. Cool, finish the series, amazing. So I hope I find it the same way. All right, I'm intrigued, Jordy, Duncan, what is it? you ever read The Poppy War? Oh, yes, Duncan. Yes, I have. Duncan, this book fucking blows. Uh, that That's not the popular opinion online. That is not the popular opinion, Duncan, but this book fucking sucks. Uh, <laughs> yes. Duncan, right when we started this episode, we both wrote out a list of books we wanted to read, and this one was on his, and when I saw that, I went, oh boy, I have to air my dirty laundry, and that is, I think this book is bad, really bad. Well, if you're listening to this and you strongly disagree with what Geordie just said, please reach out and tell us about it on our Instagram, it's just fancy podcast, and if you've read the worm and his kings please also reach out and tell us what you thought did you love it as much as we did 
And if you have read any of the books that we will be reading or have read so far, also reach out. You can reach out not only at our Instagram, but also at our Gmail, this fantasy podcast at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you guys. And at the moment on Instagram, we've really got a great drive going, putting out additional reviews on things that we have read outside of our main book club books. So do check it out. We'll look forward to seeing you there and the cool stuff which Duncan is putting on our Instagram. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. So long, everyone. Till next time.